Father, as we turn to your word, Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. And Lord, that we'll be aware of, of Jesus, that he'll make us aware of Jesus as the truth. Oh, Father, just anoint us now, we pray, because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <laughs> right, okay, uh, we carry on tonight in a similar theme to the last two talks in this Church Life series, but again from a, a slightly different angle. And uh, what we're going to look at tonight is uh, what the Bible <coughs> teaches about putting the crowd outside. Now, that's got you, hasn't it? So go to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start off with... Um, a story in the life of Jesus and uh, I want to show you a principle that God works by and it's uh, very possibly a principle that you hadn't thought of or at least not in the particular way that we're going to see it here. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to start reading from verse 18. While Jesus was speaking, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now go down to verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a tumult, this was renter, renter, a mourning mob. What the Jews did, if someone died, there were literally people, you hired them, and they came in and they'd weep and wail through the funeral, you see. Um, Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a tumult. And he said to them, Depart, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. So here, Jesus, he's called in to a particular situation that needs a raising from the dead. But the thing that we want to concentrate on tonight is why was it that Jesus removed the crowd before he acted in power? Can you see, he came to the house and there was the crowd. He removed the crowd, he put the crowd outside first and only then did he act. And that's the question we're going to answer. Why did Jesus remove the crowd before acting in power? And the reason is, and we're going to see the fact that God always removes the crowd. He always removes the crowd before he really does what he wants to do. And we've got to ask why. Well, the reason that Jesus always removes the crowd before he acts is because the crowds worship him. Go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 and find verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, this is before Jesus, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered the holy city, everyone was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet from Nazareth. The crowds worship Jesus. But go to Mark 15. 
because it's not as simple as that. Jesus doesn't mind people worshipping him. But the problem is that the same crowd who worshipped him then went on and they crucified him. Mark chapter 15, and let's read from verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, What shall I do with the man whom you call the king of the Jews? And the crowd cried out again, Crucify him. Now can you see the problem? The crowd always hinders the work of God. Jesus put the crowd outside because they worshipped him. But the problem was that he knew that they would later go on to deny him. And the problem is the crowd is never what it seems to be. The true story behind it is different to that which it looks. <clears throat> and I just want to show you in the Bible this principle that you must always overcome the problem of the crowd before breaking through to the Lord in a new way. Go to Mark chapter 2, back in, chapter Mark, uh, in Mark to chapter 2. And we'll read verses 1 to 4. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many that were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralysed man who was carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. They couldn't get to Jesus because the crowd was in the way. So they had to break through the roof. They had to overcome the crowd. Go to Luke. Luke chapter 19. Start reading from verse 1. He entered Jericho and he was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and rich and he sought to see who Jesus was but could not on account of the crowd because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Zacchaeus wanted to get to Jesus but he couldn't because the crowd was in the way. He had to overcome the problem of the crowd before he could break through to Jesus. Go back into Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. And verse 29. As they came out of Jericho, a great crowd followed Jesus. This is the great problem with the crowd, as we're going to see they follow Jesus. A great crowd followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the roadside, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us. So these two, you know, this, this guy, these two blokes, they needed to break through to Jesus. They were blind, they needed healing. And they were crying out to Jesus, but the crowd was making so much noise and they just told them to shut up. And so they shouted even louder. They had to overcome the problem of the crowd before they could break through to Jesus. Now that is true individually in our lives. 
but it is also true for every individual church as well. Every church has to let God deal with the problem of the crowd before Jesus can really move in power. So what exactly is the crowd? What exactly is it? What are we meaning here that the crowd gets in the way all the time? What we mean is this, God is a trinity, God is triune, alright? The truth about our God is that there is one God but in three persons. God is three in one. So what we see in the Godhead is individuality and corporateness. He is one God but he is three persons. We see individuality and corporateness at the very centre of the nature of God himself. One God, three persons. Now we are in the image of God and therefore those two aspects are also part of our experience. They're a natural part of us. Individuality, you are you, I am me, but corporateness. No man is an island. One human being needs other human beings. And of course in the Christian life you cannot go it alone. You are saved as an individual before Jesus and nothing must ever come in the way of your individuality. But we must be in fellowship. Individuality and corporateness. That is a natural part of man. But you see the thing is that sin has corrupted the human race. Every aspect of our humanity, even as Christians, every aspect of our humanity has been corrupted. It's been perverted, alright. And this aspect of our individuality and corporateness has been perverted as well. And the way sin perverts it is in one of two ways. Most people are either more one thing or the other of these two things, alright, but this is how sin perverts it. Number one, individuality becomes individualism. Can you see? Individuality becomes individualism. There is an imbalance in the life of such people away from corporateness. Their individualism is always at the expense of other people and they become isolated. So that's the first way that sin affects people. Individuality becomes individualism. Me, 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 self, self, self at the expense of other people around you. And there is an imbalance away from a corporateness. But the other side of this coin is that corporateness becomes the herd instinct. Corporateness, when perverted by sin, can land you up merely as one of the herd, losing your individuality. So there is an in, a sort of imbalance away from actually being an individual before God. The herd instinct, and it's that that is the crowd. The herd instinct, the crowd, that is what God has to deal with. Now you've heard me talk about the false teaching that there is in the shepherding movement and the authoritarianism that there is in some churches. But you see, for that to, to excuse me, for that to keep going, you've got to have two types of person in order to have a shepherding movement. Firstly, you've got to have the dominating individualists of group one. 
the shepherds. All right? You've got to have them. But secondly, you've got to have the passive herd instinct people of group two, the sheep, the crowd. Can you see authoritarian movements in the church can only exist with those two people. You've got to have the individualists, the dominators, and they want to dominate and that's wrong. But you've also got to have the herd, haven't you? Those people who are prepared to be passive, those people in group two who are prepared to be dominated, you've got to have them as well. Now that is what I'm meaning by the crowd, and it is the <coughs> crowd that Jesus has to deal with in us. <clears throat> Let's just see how it was that Satan used the combination of both these groups of people in order to get Jesus on the cross. Now, obviously, you're well aware that, uh, I mean, Satan, he thought that this was his final victory, didn't he? This was the great coup. He'd worked towards it, you know, for 4,000 years. And when Satan moves through people, it's always through combinations of sin. Satan can't move through someone unless there's undealt with sin in their life. And so by using people, Satan wanted to murder Jesus and put a stop to all this salvation business. Of course, it went wrong, so it was when Jesus died that Satan was beaten. But Satan thought he was onto a winner here. And we're just going to see a verse in the Bible which shows us how Satan got Jesus on the cross through people by using a combination of these two groups. And if you look in any society, you'll see a combination of the... Wherever there is wrong being done, you'll find a combination of these two types of people. Go to Matthew 27. <coughs> Matthew 27. And verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the people to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Can you see that? The chief, chief priests and the elders persuaded the people, the crowd, to have Jesus killed. Now can you see what's happening there? You've got the big guns, you've got the big boys, You've got the dominators, the individualists, the elite at the top. You've got them manipulating and dominating the crowd. But you've also got the herd, the crowd, who are allowing themselves to be manipulated. You know, these sort of people in these churches where they're sort of dominated by their leaders, I know that's all very dreadful and it's all very terrible and dominating leaders can hurt you. Poor thing. Of course they can. They can hurt you. But you've got to think on the other end. What are you doing allowing yourself to be manipulated? Why are you giving into it? Can you see? When Christians get led up the garden path by dominating leaders, I'll tell you, it's no use them when it all comes crashing down around them it's no use them trying to blame the leaders. I've got no sympathy for them. They allowed themselves to be dominated. So can you see that combination? When Jesus was put to death, Satan used the combination of group one, the dominating people, and group two, the passive, submissive people, if you see what I mean, the crowd. So that's what we're looking at, the crowd, the herd instinct that God has to deal with. Now, we've dealt with group one, the individualistic troublemakers. We've dealt with them in past talks, all right? 
that category of the individualist and the troublemaker, me, 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 at the expense of everyone else, we have dealt with that in past talks. And obviously, any of us who, looking honestly at ourselves, might feel that we are potentially in that category, then we've got to judge ourselves and get a handle on it before the law. All right? So I've always said, wear the cap that fits. Don't wear the one that doesn't fit. Wear the cap that fits. So anyone who is in that kind of category, potentially an individualist, you know, individualistic, proud, you know, I'm going to have my way no matter what, we've got to judge that in ourselves. But now we're concentrating on group two, aren't we, the crowd? And let me define it in another way, and you'll recognise this phrase. And it's a dreadful thing. This thing I'm going to say now has been a blight on this planet for 6,000 years. Do you know what it is? It's the silent majority. It's the silent majority. That's what we're dealing with tonight. Jesus put the crowd outside. The herd. The silent majority. And that's what we're concentrating on. Now, we've got to remember, there's a little bit of this in all our hearts. Remember, there's a bit of an individualist in all our hearts, and there's a little bit of a herd instinct in all our hearts. Everyone is more one than the other, but there's a little bit of both of them in all of us. And we've got to really make sure that we let the, the Lord deal with us. We've got to, to watch ourselves very, very carefully. I just want to actually define the crowd. I want to give it a way, you know, sort of like, of actually defining it. What is the crowd that Jesus must, must put outside? And it's this. It's the tendency to be unquestioningly influenced in your thinking or your living by anything other than that which you know for yourself to be in line with the Word of God. That is the crowd instinct. I'll read it again. It's the tendency to be unquestioningly influenced in your thinking and how you live by anything other than that which you know for yourself to be in line with the Word of God. The crowd, the herd instinct, is just letting yourself go with the prevailing mood. That's what it is. I'll just go with the prevailing mood. It's just doing what everyone else is doing. Taking the line of least resistance. What is going to be safest? What is going to be easiest? What is going to keep me Mr. Nice Guy or Mrs. Nice Girl? Can you see? That's what the crowd does. In other words, it's always going along with the majority. And it's very, very dangerous. Because when people are doing that, <coughs> it boils down to this. It's the refusal to take responsibility for your own life before God. It's the refusal to make up your own mind and to decide for yourself. But of course, in the full knowledge that if your decisions go wrong, then you carry the can and you can't blame anyone else. You see, Christians, they get under authoritarian leadership and they just do what the leaders say. All right? But you see, the point is, if their life ends up a mess, well, they can blame their leaders, can't they? You see, and they say, oh, well, I just did what he said. It's his fault. No, 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 no. That is completely 100% wrong. Can you see? Those Christians, they're just evading responsibility for their own lives. They want everyone else to make up their minds for them. 
Because if they just give in to people unquestioningly, if anything's go wrong, they can blame those other people. But of course, the truth of the Christian life is that God's finger is always pointing at you and it is always pointing with me. Well, you know, one of the things about God is that he is absolutely infinite. That means that each one of us has got his undivided attention all the time. When I pray, God is listening to me and no one else. But he's doing it to all of us at the same time. That is the infinite God that we have. But there's something else as well. God has an infinite number of fingers. And there's always one pointing at you. And there's always one pointing at me. You see, because God is always saying, no, 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 you cannot blame anyone else. That was your fault. That was your fault. If your life goes wrong, that is your fault. If my life goes wrong, that is my fault. And can you see the herd instinct is finally the refusal to take responsibility for your own life, hiding from God in the crowd. There are no excuses. There is never anyone to blame but ourselves. Going along with the majority, the line of least resistance, you know, going with the prevailing mood, that is the sin of the crowd that God wants to deal with in his church. Go to 1 Corinthians 14, something that Paul says. 1 Corinthians 14, this, this kind of sums it up nicely, this stuff. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be babes in evil, but in thinking be mature. So he says, now look, when it comes to thinking things out, when it comes to making decisions, he says, I want you not to be like children. When it comes to evil, he says, be children. But when it comes to thinking and working things out, he says, be mature. Now let me put that another way. There's one translation in the Bible that takes that verse and it translates it like this. In understanding, be men. That's what Jesus expects of every one of us. In understanding, be men. The thing about kids is that everyone else makes their decisions for them. And that's right. Because they haven't got the wherewithal to make their own. But part of childhood and growing up is coming to the point where you make your own decisions. And yet the tragedy is that many, many Christians, they never grow up. Letting everyone, they'll just let the majority make their decisions for them. Can you see? They're passive. Now, Paul says in understanding, be men. Be grown up. Take responsibility yourself. Think for yourself and let no one else do your thinking for you. That is so important that each one of us think for ourselves and never let anyone else do our thinking for us. Let's actually see the condition of a Christian who suffers from the crowd syndrome, all right? How does it kind of, what is the actual truth about a Christian who is suffering from the crowd syndrome? syndrome. Remember, group one, the individualist. The problem with the individualist is that the individualist won't accept things even when clearly proved to be biblical or true. That's the problem with the individualist. The refusal to accept things even when those things have been proven to be biblical or true. The individualist will 
refuse, you know, even against the facts. But group two, the crowd, the herd instinct, the problem there is that they will accept things even if those things have not been clearly proved to be biblical and true. Now, can you see the problem there? Group one, their problem is that they're stubborn, and that shows itself that even when you show them that something is biblical and true, they still won't accept it. But group two, they, they will accept things, usually anything, they will accept things whether or not those things have been demonstrated clearly to be biblical or true. In other words, they're just, you know, minds like vacuum cleaners. <laughs> suck, suck, suck. Whatever's going, they'll suck it in. You see the problem? Because they're not thinking for themselves. Now, firstly, <coughs> a herd instinct Christian, a Christian who suffers from the crowd syndrome or the herd instinct, that type of Christian doesn't actually believe the Bible at all. They just believe the last Christian book they read. Now, can you see the difference? They don't actually believe the Bible at all. They just believe the last Christian book that they read. And a herd instinct Christian doesn't understand the Bible at all. They're simply repeating what the last Bible teacher they heard said. Are you starting to get the picture? You met Christians like this, all right? And a herd instinct Christian, a Christian suffering from the crowd syndrome, a Christian like that doesn't have convictions of truth based on the clear teaching of the Bible. They merely have opinions about what the Bible says based on what other Christians say. Are you beginning to see the condition of the crowd? of the herd instinct Christian and why God has to deal with it. You see, in understanding, they're babies. They're not thinking for themselves, they're just taking the line of least resistance. But the reason that they've never grown up, the reason that in their thinking they're still children, letting everyone else make their decisions for them before the Lord, the reason they've never grown up is because, quite frankly, they are too lazy to be bothered with it all. They've got a life to get on with. Understanding the Bible? Well, we got Bible teachers to do that for us. Praying? No, we got elders to do that for us. You see, always throwing it on to other people. They're too lazy to be bothered with it. And the problem with the crowd syndrome Christian is that they aren't actually disciples of Jesus at all. They're not disciples of Jesus. They merely, and you can read this in the four Gospels. Read the Gospels again sometime with this in mind. The herd instinct, the crowd syndrome Christian, isn't actually a disciple of Jesus at all. They merely follow him around ogling. That's what they end up doing in practice. They simply follow him around ogling. They look, they watch and they benefit from what he does. But they do not become disciples. Born again, saved, yes, Christians, but they don't become a disciple. The Greek word for a disciple 
is a learner. That is what the Greek word for a disciple means. It means a learner. And that's what we're talking about. Being willing to learn for yourself, not just letting everyone else make up your minds for them, for you. And these Christians, they never ever learn from the Lord for themselves. Let's actually have a look at the symptoms. Let's play spot the herd instinct believer, shall we? How can you spot them? What are the telltale signs? Okay, number one, and these will always happen. They've got to happen. They're the symptoms of this disease. Number one, they latch on to big ministries and they just follow people. You'll find that they're always into some big ministries, some big men or big women. And that's what they do. And they just follow those people around. What's the joke? Big <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they hook into the big ministries and they just follow them around. And kind of, what they say is this, well, if so-and-so teaches it, it must be right. Or if so-and-so preaches against that, then it must be wrong. Can you see? That's all they're doing. They don't have to think it out for themselves because they've got a big ministry that their faith is in. And they let this big minister do all their thinking for them. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And first of all, verse 12. Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you are saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Go over into chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, for when one says, I belong to Paul, and another says, oh no, I belong to Apollos, he says, are you not merely men? He says, that's not what Christianity is. And what these Corinthians people were doing, they were a herd. If you read through Corinthians, you'll find the herd instinct running right the way through it, just going with the crowd. What they were doing is that, you know, kind of they thought, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, Paul, I heard him preach. Oh, wow, yeah, wow. Can you say, oh, Peter, oh, what a minister, Peter. Can you say, and that's all that they were doing. And they were getting in their little factions and they were just going with their own particular little crowd. Now, this is where, and you know what I call it, the big meeting syndrome. This is where it comes from and this is why you have it. You know, rings through their noses, all the big meetings, you ought to try it sometime. It probably won't be worth the petrol, but you go to a few of these really big mega meetings. Say take a radius of 50 miles from here. Go to these big mega meetings that they have. Do you want to know something? You'll see the same people there. You'll see the same people there. You see the big meeting syndrome, the big ministries. Now why? It's because those believers, <coughs> they feel safe in a crowd. They feel safe when they're in a crowd. Especially when there's a big minister up there. Oh, when you get international names there. Oh, they love it. They love it. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you. Can you see? They're living off of other people's faith. Always reminded me of like heroin addicts. Off for their fix. 
Sissery like it is, got to get their fix. They're living off of the faith of other people. They're sponging off of big meetings. They feel safe, not because Jesus is with them, no, but because that big minister is there or, or this ministry team is there. And they're living off other people's faith. And you can tell it, spot the ring through their noses. And the other sign is always, while it's eternally opened, at the ready. And these Christians, they spend... When other believers go to the cinema or go out to the restaurant, these believers, you know what they do? They go to big meetings and throw money at people who ask, it, who ask them for it. Can, yeah, can you see the stupidity of that? So that's the first way to spot the herd instinct Christian. Now then, the second way you can spot them is that they're unstable. As Christians, they are unstable. And the reason for that is that you cannot live your life at big meetings. See, the problem is, Monday morning is still there. I'll tell you, if we had a ministry in this country of making Monday morning go away, it would be the biggest ministry we've ever seen. But it doesn't matter how many meetings you go to, it doesn't matter how many big men you hear speak, Monday morning is still going to come round. And these believers, they're unstable. And I'll tell you why. They don't quite know what to do in situation after situation because they didn't cover that particular subject at the last conference they went to. And they're lost. Can you see? They're absolutely lost. Go to James, the letter of James. See what he says about this. <coughs> right, James chapter 1, find verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. You see these Christians blown about like a little, you know, tiny bit of water on the sea, tossed all over the place, helpless, an eternal victim of circumstances. Why? Because they're living off the, the faith of other people. <clears throat> they're not living their Christian lives for themselves. And because of their dependence on big people, big ministries, they never ever develop the maturity of their individual Christian lives. Now then, number three. What's the third sign of the... Uh, crowd syndrome Christian. Well, it's this, they're spiritually faddy. They're faddy, they're always on the latest bandwagon. Fads come and go in the church, sadly. And these believers are always on the latest fad. For instance, when John Wimber's been in town, everything is signs and wonders. That's all they know, that's all they talk about. When John Wimber's been to town, everything is signs and wonders for these people. When Billy Graham's been in town, then suddenly everything's mission and evangelism. So you'll hear them talk about, all right? Then when Bill Sabritsky's been in town, it's all demons and deliverance. That's all they're thinking about. You see how fatty it is. And when Leanne Payne's been in town, it's all inner healing and holy water. <laughs> can you see how the fads happen? It's all they can talk about. They're faddy, always on the latest bandwagon until a more interesting one comes along. And my goodness, when they come back from spring harvest, 
well, do the laws of slander allow me to say anything? No. But they come back from spring harvest and everything is exactly the same as it was before they went. And there's another thing about these Christians. They never, ever, ever change. I have known believers like this that, I, I mean, churches that for year, every year off to the big conference and back they come. You see, they've had their fix and they're hyped up. You know, they're flying. They're flying, man. Two weeks later, they're down. Oh, it didn't work. And those churches remain absolutely unaltered for year after year after year. And you've got to ask yourself a question. What good are all these big ministries doing? What's the good of all these mega meetings, these massive conferences, when the fruit that comes from them is, well, everything remains the same as it was before? I've spoken with people. They've come back from the John Wimber things, and they've got the revelation of signs and wonders, and wow, they're off. But they never see a miracle. You see, it, it leads to nothing. Because this is not the way that the Lord works in our lives. If you follow people, and often the ministries who have followed, this isn't the fault of those people. It's often not their fault. It's very difficult to stop people latching onto you. But it's not the way forward. It's not the way that God actually works. Go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood in understanding be men, so that the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is in us, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men and their craftiness in deceitful wiles. It's no good, faddiness, just on the latest bandwagon. It's absolutely hopeless. And it's a sign that this person is simply a crowd syndrome believer. Now then, another way to spot them all right, another uh, symptom of this disease, is that they're very picky. They're very, very choosy about the teaching they do or don't want. See what I mean? I mean, you have a healing thing and whoosh, they're there. Rent a mob. No problem. Have a healing thing. All right. But you say, right, we're going to really get stuck in now to the atonement. We're really going to understand how the death of Jesus on the cross delivered us from the penalty of sin. They're not interested. Can you see? You'll get them to the dramatic stuff, but you won't get them to Bible study. They don't want to put their heads down and actually do any work. They're very, very picky. They want the crowd. They want the drama. They want excitement and they want the buzz of ministry. They want sort of demons being cast out. They love that. They love deliverance sessions. That's absolutely marvellous. The crowd thrives on that. They want instant answers to their problems through the latest psychological technique or through the laying on of hands and being pushed over. That kind of, they, they, they seem to think that's the answer to some things. Actually, 
I've had quite an idea, actually, because, you know, eventually, eventually we're going to have to give in, you know. We're not going to be able to stand, stand up against it all. So, uh, you know, in time, we're, obviously, we are destined, as we grow, we're going to have to have big meetings and we'll be the host. And, of course, all the Christians will come along and they'll, you know, they'll want hands laid on them and, of course, they'll want to fall over. But that's boring. And, of course, you know how they do... I don't know if you've ever seen... What they do is, you know, the big meetings, they have the, a system of wires. They're very thin and they're just about half inch off the ground and they have a bloke with a handle and when the people go up when you lay hands on they pull and the wire sweeps across and of course knocks them all off their feet that's how they do it so but i thought no no i mean let's not let's let's really go for it and i think i've found a way i think the lord has shown me how we can really get a coup here because i think the way that we'll do it we'll have a system of wires but we'll have them coming from the ceiling and what will happen is when someone comes forward for prayer then the person who sort of like stands behind them, what they'll do is secretly, they'll get this wire and they'll just hook it on their collar. And then what happens is, when, when we lay hands on them, we'll give the sign, they'll pull the lever, and they're going to ascend. <laughs> oh, tell you, no, not, not falling over for us. We're going to have ascensions. No, but can you see that, that that is what turns these people on? It's, it's the drama, it's the excitement, rather than actually the Lord himself. Just go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. <coughs> and, of course, they're so picky because there are so many subjects in the Bible that go against that, go against their shallowness. And so that's why they don't like good old systematic Bible teaching. They've got a lot of, lot of subjects in the Bible that they just don't want. They're very, very picky. 2 Timothy chapter 4, <coughs> start reading from verse 2. He says, preach the word. He's writing to Timothy. What word? The word of God, the Bible. Preach the word. Be urgent in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke and exhort. Be unfailing in patience and in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. And I'll tell you, many of these latest faddy revelations and, and, and the ministries that are based on them, they're not revelations, they're myths. It's imagination. It's just simply the latest little false teaching that Satan's managed to get Christians hooked on. And so there you have it, they're picky, all right, the herd instinct Christians. Whatever they're there for, it's not to get good, solid teaching. They're in it for something else. You see, the truth is simply this. They don't actually want Jesus and his truth at all. It's that is just going too far for them. Go to John chapter 6. John's Gospel and chapter 6. First of all, we'll read verse 60. Verse 60, many of his disciples, Jesus has just done a little bit of Bible teaching here. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Or to put it into English, crikey, it's a bit, bit much, isn't it? Oh, dear, no, that can't be right. Go on to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples drew back 
Now notice that, many of his disciples. This crowd following him, they were believers, they were born again. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now can you see the difference between the twelve and these crowds of thousands of other Christians? is that they wanted Jesus and they wanted his word of eternal life. They didn't like any of the things Jesus said any more than the rest of them, but the difference was they wanted the truth, and when they saw the truth, they submitted to it. The crowd didn't. The crowd was picky. And there came a time when after following Jesus, these thousands of people marching around following him, ogling at the miracles, eating the bread he miraculously produced, etc., etc. After all that, when it got down to the nitty-gritty, no, that wasn't for them. And so off they went. They'd had enough. Now, if there's one word that you can use to sum the crowd up, the herd instinct, Christians, it's this. The crowd is fickle. Fickle. And fickleness is a terrible thing. To be fickle means to changeable. Never the same from one day to the next. Changing with the mood. Going along with the herd unthinkingly. And what's interesting is that this word fickle, it comes from an old English word, ficole. That's where fickle comes from, an old English word, ficole. And ficole meant deceitful. The word fickle actually means deceitful. Why? Well, I'll tell you. Because they're kidding themselves. This crowd who left Jesus, even though they were believers, Jesus said something that was too much for them and off they went. All right? You see, they were kidding themselves because they were calling themselves disciples of Jesus. But when it hit the bottom line, they weren't disciples of Jesus in the slightest. They were Christians but there's no way that they were actually disciples. But they always managed to look like they were. They were fickle. They were deceitful. <clears throat> now, the thing is, Jesus does not want the crowd in his church. Whether it's his church worldwide or be it individual churches, Jesus does not want the crowd in his church, and that's why he removed it. And we don't want the crowd in this church either. Jesus doesn't want the crowd, and neither do we. What we want here is we want people who are following Jesus for themselves. Can you see? Following the Lord for themselves. We want people to be growing in their knowledge of his word, but only accepting what they are convinced is in accordance with it. <clears throat> we want people to get the teaching we give here with an open heart and an open mind. 
not with prejudice, not coming along saying, well, I'm just not going to accept anything they say, but we want people to receive the teaching with an open heart and an open mind, but rejecting anything we teach that doesn't genuinely convince them is biblical. We want people who will question, who will challenge, who will find out for themselves because they are sold out to Jesus. We do not want people who just come along because this is some kind of Christian club. Socialists go down the working men's club. Well, I'll tell you, the tragedy is that many Christians, they go to church, and heaven help the churches they go to. It's just their version of the working man's club. But Jesus wants people in his church because they are sold out to him and that they are going to be doing everything they can to find out what his will is and then to live in accordance with that will. Go to Colossians. Let's see what Paul's burden for Christians was. Just a few verses. First of all, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. This is Paul writing to churches. He says, From the day we've heard of you, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now that was Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. Go to Philippians, just before Colossians. Philippians, chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, I want to see you working at it. Not kind of sitting there thinking, well, I mean, I'll, I'll leave that to everyone else. No, he says, I want each one of you to be working at it, to be growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Go to 2 Corinthians. Back into 2 Corinthians. And chapter 1. And verse 13. He says, For we write you nothing but what you can read and understand. And I hope you will understand fully. Now, so many Christians, they say, oh, well, I'm in the Bible, it's so complicated, it's so, really, it's not, it's, it's not really worth trying to find out too much about it, is it? And so many Christians, they say that on about 10,000 subjects a day, well, of course, it's impossible to know what the Bible actually says. You've just got to come up with the interpretation that, that suits you. But what does Paul say about the Bible? He says, we write you nothing but what you can read and understand. And in this book, there is nothing that you cannot read and understand. And Paul says, and I hope you will understand fully. That's what Paul was expecting from the people in those churches. But the thing is that when he was writing to these churches, he was writing to all the believers in it. 
It wasn't written to some elite in the church. You know, I mean, some Christians, they think that there's kind of an elite and they do all the work and they do all the thinking and they do all the working everything out. You know, and then kind of like the herd, they just follow along passively behind. That is a cop-out. Paul wanted each believer in those churches to be struggling with what the will of God was in every situation and to be living in accordance with it. So I've said that we want people who are going to challenge and question because they want to know for themselves what God wants of them and then they're going to be doing it. But just go to Philippians because I want to make a qualification here. <coughs> there are loads of Christians out there that if they got hold of this tape, and who knows, one day they will, and they discovered that the Chigwell Christian Fellowship wants believers who are going to challenge and question, I'll tell you, will be inundated with rebellious nutters. We've got to get a qualification in here. Philippians 2, verse 14. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, so that you may be blameless and innocent. Now, Paul isn't saying here, don't ask questions. You know, uh, you know, what does the Trinity mean? Shut up, don't ask questions. That's what the Bible says. No, he's not talking about that. that, that. He's talking about the dishonest questioning that goes on. And he links it with grumbling or questioning. Now, the grumblers and the questioners, the dishonest Christians with all their questions, I'm not talking about honest questions, but I'm talking about the people <coughs> who you go over it with them for the 20th time. Something that is absolutely black and white in the Bible and you go over it with them for the 20th time. And they're still saying, yeah, but what about and what about, and what about? Now their problem is that they are unwilling to accept what the Bible says because there are things in it that they do not want to be in the Bible. Can you see? And they're using questions as a smokescreen. These are the people who are never satisfied with anything. I mean, you can take them through the Bible and show them black and white teachings. Black and white. But at every step of the way, they're always moaning about something, they're always grumbling about something, and they're always pulling up these smokescreen questions which are totally irrelevant to anything. Now, Paul says that's not the kind of questioning that there must be. That is cheating. That is not genuinely questioning to find out what the Bible says. That is throwing up smokescreen questions because you don't like what the Bible says, and that is a totally different thing. And that kind of questioning, well, people don't get away with it here. So, you know, I mean, those who tried, <laughs> they're not here to try again, are they? You know, I mean, obviously that is absolutely useless because that is just rebellion against God. So I just want to put that proviso in. We want people to challenge and question, but assuming that they're doing that to really honestly find out for themselves what God actually wants. And so we're back to where we started. We want people to challenge and question in understanding, be men. Don't be like children in understanding, be men. Really get to grips with it. And you see, the thing is that that will mean simply this. It means that each one of us has got to have the guts to actually live out what we do understand of the Bible so far. Is it? 
We've seen in past teaching that there's a principle in the Bible that if you're being faithful to what you do understand, God will give you new understanding. But if you're not being faithful to what you already understand, then don't expect further revelation because you ain't going to get it. <clears throat> so what we're saying here is that we're wanting people who are going to have the guts to be living out at least what they do understand of what the Bible teaches, including the tough bits. The attitude is simply this, if God says it, that's it. Any questions are simply to find out what God says. Can you see? The questioning is to get you to see what God has said. But once you see that God has said something in the Word, no matter what it is, once you've seen that God says it, then that is it. There is no longer any argument in any way at all. It is not possible for anyone to better what God has said. It is, not better, it is not possible for any believer to come up with solutions which are wiser than the ones that God has given us in the Bible. The arrogance and presumption of that is absolutely awful. When we discover what God says about something, we do it. Now, this is what the crowd is, and I've already said that this, this crowd is potentially in all our hearts. Can you see? we can all suffer from at least a little bit of it. Now, some Christians suffer from a little bit of it. All right. So whether it's a little or a little, we've got to make sure that God deals with it because it is a sin. And what it boils down to is this. It is safe following Jesus in a crowd. And you see, the tragedy is that it would be possible for individuals, for this fellowship here, it would be possible for the rest of us to actually become the crowd that you are in. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us, but it's actually possible for individuals to kind of use us as if we are the crowd, and we're not the crowd. For instance, <coughs> you see, when you're in the crowd, it's safe to follow Jesus, and for this reason, you can get close to him, but you don't have to get too close. Can you see, you have that safe anonymity of the crowd. So you can get close to Jesus, but not too close. Because, of course, if you get too close, Jesus' finger might, sp might start pointing at things that we do not want him to notice. Can you see? So that's why Christians find it safe in the crowd. You can get close to Jesus, but not too close. You can actually hide from Jesus in the crowd, but whilst maintaining the appearance of being really sold out to him. Can you see? That crowd that was following Jesus, oh, yippee, hoorah, Lord, bless you, Lord, all the miracles that you're working, and then Jesus gave them a Bible study and they cleared off. Can you see? They were safe in the crowd. Jesus didn't deal with them individually. He dealt with the crowd en masse. He thought, I need a purge here. So do you know what he did? He picked on a biblical subject that he knew would be too hard for them to take because he knew that they weren't really willing to submit to God. And remember, here's the point. You are as faithful to God as you are being in that one area that he's pinpointing in your life at this particular moment. You see what I mean? 
We've seen before the, uh, the technique that we have of uh, repenting of everything except what God is convicting us of at that moment. Easy. And so that is why often Jesus, he homes in on the very last thing that you wanted to have to handle. Isn't he? You know, when God says, right, that, and it's the last thing that you wanted him to put his finger on. Can you see? That's God dealing with the crowd. And you see, that is where the deceitfulness of being fickle comes in with the crowd. Because whilst not being sold out to Jesus, because you're in a crowd that is ogling him, you look like you're sold out to Jesus. And that is just sheer hypocrisy. That is why the word fickleness comes from the old English word fikol, which means deceitful. <clears throat> now, you see, the thing is this. We've got to all ask ourselves a question. We've got to compare this to ourselves. This is vitally important to being part of a church. See, Jesus is calling each one of us out of the safety of the crowd. He is daring each one of us to live our own Christian lives rather than trying to let other people live it for us. Now, it's not possible to grow as an individual without fellowship. That's not possible, we know that. You cannot grow as an individual before the Lord without fellowship, but if you use fellowship as something to hide away in and feel safe, then you will never grow as an individual. Now, can you see what I mean? Even being part of a church, even part of a biblical church, can actually get in the way of how you're growing in the Lord. Because the point is that you can end up simply using that church in a wrong way. You know, kind of coming along, doing what everyone else is doing, looking the part, when really, that's the reason you're there isn't because you're really 100% sold out to Jesus. <coughs> you can actually be hiding from Jesus in the safety of being part of a church. And again, you're letting your individuality suffer through sin's perversion of our corporateness. Can you see? Jesus does not want us anonymous faces in the crowd. He wants each one of us individually standing to attention before him. Never mind about everyone else, us individually standing before him. And that is how we need to grow. Just go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Let's read from verse 13. And look at this. There's, there's something so important here. Now, when Jesus came into the districts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, blah, 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 blah. Now go down into verse 15. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter got it right. But can you see? It's, nev it's never what other people think that matters a fig to Jesus. He said, 
what do other people say? And they said, blah, 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 blah. But he said, now, what do you say? Can you see the point? What do other people think? Blah, 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 blah. What do you think? Can you see? The Lord is forever relating to us as individuals. And it is never what anyone else is doing that matters. It is only what we, as an individual, are thinking or doing that he's interested in. There's loads of false teaching out there in the church. Yes, but what about you? Are you standing against it? There's deception going on in the body of Christ. Yes, but are you being taken in? Or are you testing everything by the word of God? Can you see that is the question that Jesus is always addressing to us? So now let me ask you a question. <coughs> What's the Chigwell Christian Fellowship all about? We're here, it's the Chigwell Christian Fellowship. What is the Chigwell Christian Fellowship all about? What should any church be about? The answer is this. A group of people seeking together to live in full obedience to the Lord through his word. Now that's the question. What's the fellowship all about? And that's the answer. But now, the question that really matters. What are you all about? You're sitting here. What are you all about? What am I all about? That's the question that we've got to ask ourselves. Are we really passing that test? And that question is not only the place to leave this talk, but that question, I'll leave it haunting you, <laughs> is also the place to end this church life series.